Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 26, headlined by Michelle Watterson and Marina Rodriguez. This fight gets put together on super short notice after our original main event falls off. We were supposed to get Corey Sandhagen against TJ Dillashaw. Dillashaw suffers a cut on his eyebrow and unfortunately pushes the fight back by a couple weeks. We are still not... Um, up to date in terms of when this fight is actually going to happen, but it is on the back burner as of now. And this weekend, we have Rodriguez against Watterson in a five round flyweight main event. Uh, still, some intriguing fights on the card. Gregor Gillespie hopefully making his return. Mike Trezano making his return as well. Neil Magny versus Jeff Neal, another great fight on the card. So, definitely some entertaining scraps to keep us uh, occupied as we wait until next week's big UFC 262 card, which also hit another unfortunate uh, uh, pushback. I believe Leon Edwards and Nate Diaz is now pushed back to UFC 263. Uh, but we're still getting Michael Chandler versus Charles Oliveira. So I'm very excited for that lightweight title main event for UFC 263. But we are talking or UFC 262. But we are talking about UFC Vegas 26. Um, and, and again, I, I don't mind the card overall. So before we get into all the breakdowns and all that stuff, the thing that I like to do right off the top is. Our betting recap of the last event of the last event we had was UFC Vegas 25, where we hit our 11th straight winning event. And it may have had a little bit of luck to do it. Actually, it would have been a winning event, even if the dog of the night played in it. But we did get an extra 1.34 units in our pocket with our dog of the night play hitting in at TJ Brown, getting that decision victory over Kai Kamaka. Very close fight. Personally, I scored it for Kai Kamaka, but I won't, uh, you know, worry too much. I won't... Uh, hate on it too much as I know eventually those MMA gods are going to come back and get their money back off of another poor decision that I'll probably end up losing in the very near future. Future, um, Lock of the night. Sean, Sean Strickland, a very easy pick here. Minus 260 goes out there as a 5-unit bet. Hits for plus 1.92 units. He hits as a 10th straight lock of the night play. Now some people might be wondering, 11 straight winning events, 10 straight lock of the night hits. Why is it an 11 straight lock than I did? One of those, I believe the second one was Leon Edwards. That fight ended up being a push due to the Blah Muhammad, unfortunate eye poke in that fight. Um, so, regardless, we are still on an 11 fight winning streak. And we might, or 11 event winning streak, and we might hit 12 and 13 this weekend. As if you guys do remember, we do have Bellator 258 going down on Friday night, which I will more than likely have a lock than I play for. And then obviously for the UFC event, that should be 12 and 13 straight winning events. Hopefully that's 11 and 12 straight lock of the night hits as well too. So hopefully we can get the good juju going on. So all in all, plus 3.26 units on UFC Vegas 26, uh, 54% ROI, more than happy with that. Keep the train rolling. We're just keeping it moving. Uh, back in the, uh, we're actually, we're getting very close to getting back in the positive for 2021. Obviously I started off the year very, very poorly, uh, close to minus 26 units. Uh, to start off the year, uh, I believe that was within the first two months, and that's when I just turned it around, got back to my locker when I plays, not giving a fuck what people are thinking about how I play my plays, and we're back to cashing tickets. Good days, a ton of money in the bank account, a ton of money in the bankroll, and uh, it's all because of going back to that lock of the night style, the old school lock of the night style, and that shit is going nowhere. Hence why the Patreon is at over 345 members at this point in time. So that is a great segue into the quick plugs that I want to do. Patreon.com slash MMALOTN. The link is in the description below. You guys get my picks as soon as I drop them. You get the Lock of the Night play as soon as I post it. So you guys are able to, one, beat the line moment, and two, get it right away. Um, 
when I am on our three event winning streak or longer, I only put my picks behind that Patreon wall. So yeah, you're getting a ton of bang for your buck on that $5 a month price tag. And then once I do hit a losing event, I release my picks for free, but uh, the day before the events. So even if you are on the Patreon, you still get great incentive in terms of being on the Patreon because you get to play immediately rather than having to wait to, uh, to, until the day before the event. And it's just not the picks that you guys are gonna be supporting there, right? You guys are also supporting the work that I'll be putting on there, early access to the breakdowns. Um, the best bets and props article that I draw for every single UFC event where I go over every single fight, give you the best bet, which is either a money line on a fighter or an over-under, and then the best prop as well, as long as my as well as my confidence rating on every single bet. So you guys can see whether I'm a 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10, or a 3 out of 10 on certain fights. Uh, you guys get every single thing. Again, my, my approach for my official betting or my official bets is very low volume, right? We're only betting two, max three bets per event. But if you guys want more action, that's what the best bets and props article is for. So hopefully you guys can get some more action in on there if you'd like. Also, we have a great Discord channel on there where we have a ton of very active members in my community that not just talks about MMA and Bellator and all this other t stuff. We still talk about other sports. There's a community picks thread where uh, we have a shout out to my guy Bear Mullins putting out picks on the regular there. But we do have a lot of people sharing their picks on there too. So if they just don't want to bet MMA, there's other stuff for them to bet. And uh, yeah, it's very solid uh, community that we're going on there. Uh, very positive attitude, very civil discourse that I like to uh, to make sure that we keep there so that there's no trolls, no bullshitting, no no fights, no nonsense. Here. I mean, we save that shit for the YouTube comments. We keep the positive and civil shit in the Discord. So shout out to everybody on the Patreon right now. Again, 340 members, officially the highest rated and highest and best or, or most popular MMA-specific Patreon out there, and for good reason. We're cashing tickets, we're posting good content, and everybody loves your boy, just as I love everybody else. So shout out to everybody on the Patreon. Lastly, I want to get, want to give a sh quick shout out to CoolBet. CoolBet.com's uh, use promo code MMALOTN2, and they'll uh, give you a, uh, a uh, if, if you use that promo code, the match or initial deposit up to 200 bucks. I believe it's available in Canada, a couple of Southern American countries, as well as a couple of Scandinavian countries. The countries and the link is listed in the description below. So make sure you guys go check that out as well. Shout out to CoolBet. Once again, that's CoolBet.com. Use promo code MMALOTN, the number two, and you guys will uh, enjoy their deposit bonus. All right, that's pretty much it on my end. I appreciate you guys checking out the episode as always. Make sure you guys hit that like, make sure you guys hit that subscribe, and if you want to support your boy to the old, to, to the 10th degree, it would be to uh, uh, check out that Patreon, 5 bucks a month, and you guys get a ton of great content on there. Alright, enjoy the breakdowns, let's get into it. Carlston Harris versus Christian Aguilera, we got minus 150 on the UFC newcomer Harris and plus 130 on Christian Aguilera. Let's start off on the Christian Aguilera side of things, who's now 1-1 one one inside the UFC. He made his UFC debut successfully against Anthony Ivey when he was able to knock him out in that fight. Good win for Aguilera. He was able to fend off the takedown attempts of uh, Anthony Ivey, and that was a fight that was actually backing Anthony Ivey, and uh, unfortunately that fight did not uh, work out to the way that I thought it was going to work out. You know, I thought Anthony Ivey showed great takedowns in his um, 
uh, in his regional scene career, which is why he was able to get a bunch of submission victories on his record. And then uh, one minute into his fight with Christian Aguilera, he gets absolutely toasted. And that's one thing that we know we can get from Christian Aguilera is solid striking and good uh, power in his hands. And more often than not, he's going to knock out his opponent. But he has a very different test here in Carlson Harris, who looks a little bit more better on the feet than what we saw from Anthony Ivey, and not to mention better takedown attempts and better ability to secure takedowns and submission than Anthony Ivey. Christian Aguilera, obviously a mainstay on the regional scene with LFA, I believe he fought for Legacy and RFA in the past as well, and that's something that we've known from him is that he's either been the gatekeeper or he was the one kind of knocking on the door of the gate and, and trying to get into the UFC and luckily for him he was able to do so even though he was only riding a two-fight winning streak I think that was more so of just being a tenured fighter on the regional scene and always being on the UFC's radar and then finally making it to the UFC even though he has lost to former UFC fighter David Shad via knockout just over four or five fights ago so good for him for making it to the UFC he's one on one last fight against Sean Brady very very tough out we know how good Sean Brady is not to mention the great fight that Brady recently just had over Jake Matthews being able to submit him in that third round um and uh you know I think uh Christian Aguilera only ended up lasting two rounds in his fight with Sean Brady before he gave up that one-armed guillotine choke massive amount of torque massive amount of pressure from Sean Brady on that choke so it's not too bad for Christian Aguilera to have uh you know submitted to a, a to a choke like that um but in this fight against Carlson Harris, I think he's going to struggle a little bit. You know, he's giving up a three-inch height uh, at dis uh, height advantage for Carlson Harris. Uh, we don't have the reach on Harris, but I do believe he's going to have the reach advantage as well. And Harris brings a very good grappling and, and jiu-jitsu game to the table. You know, he last he was uh, last time we did see him. Obviously, it was pre UFC. Uh, I believe it was for looking for a fight when Dana White was over there in Abu Dhabi, and uh, they had a uh, Abu Dhabi Warriors um, and uh, EFC. I believe it's Eagle FC, which is what uh, uh, Khabib is slowly starting to take over now. Um, they did a joint show, and that's where they did a looking for the fight episode for the UFC uh, with Dana White there and Carlson Harris put on a great performance. You know, that first round, he was throwing out a lot of just one shot, one pot shot type of guy. No real combinations, just trying to gauge his distance and then eventually look for that takedown. But he was the one that actually got taken down at the ending of that first round. And then in the second round, we see him eventually lock up a takedown and then eventually lock up that dark choke and get the submission. His opponent didn't even tap. His opponent went absolutely out because he just did not want to tap but we see great submissions and finishing ability from Carlson Harris I'm expecting the same thing here in this fight with Christian Aguilar I think we see him play it safe on the outside let Christian kind of wing on some shots let Christian think that it's going to be a striking fight and then boom uh you know at, at the last second change levels get this fight to the ground and start working that jiu-jitsu game of his he has some good control from on top too, uh, and even if he isn't able to get you to down to the to the ground, we've seen him have good cardio over 25 minutes going up uh, against the European mainstay on the regional scene in Carl Booth, and he did get him a couple, down a couple times, but was also able to grind him up against the cage and kind of control him for the majority of their fight, and I expect him to do the same thing here against Christian Aguilera. I'd be surprised if we see him trade in the pocket for too long, as he knows that the power coming back his way from Aguilera may be too much, so hopefully he either you know looks to stay on the outside do his pot shotting that he does and then just try to close that distance whether it's pushing him up against the cage or dragging him to the ground um that that's his best path to victory it's just smothering his opponents and i expect him to do the same thing here with aguilera who i just honestly i, I don't even think he's a ufc caliber fighter i 
I think he's higher level regional scene fighter. But when it comes to UFC, I don't even know if he's a gatekeeper, to be honest. Um, yeah, yeah, he got the victory over Anthony Ivey. Sure, good win for him there. But I don't think he's going to beat anybody like of the Carlson Harris level or, or higher than that. And even uh, lower than Carlson Harris. I think he's very much going to struggle. So I like Harris here. I think Harris might even pull off the submission. Nope, I don't think he will. I uh, I don't think he will. I, I know he will pull off the submission here against Christian Aguilera. I think he'll smother him on the ground. And then eventually that choke will find itself. So I'm going to take Carlton, Carlton Harris. I'll take him by second round submission. Junyoung Park versus Tafan and Chukui. We got minus 140 on Nchukui and plus 120 on Junyoung Park. Let's start off on the Junyoung Park side of things. Who's coming off of two straight victories now? Both of them grapple heavy ish, right? More so the last one with John Phillips, where he was able to crew up to 13 minutes of control time. But we know John Phillips wasn't able to stand up for his life, even if it depended on it. Uh, the Mark Andre Barriot fight mixes it up that fight very well. I believe he wins a split decision there, but very much in his favor. Lands some good strikes on the feet. It shows off his overall MMA game, but obviously those takedowns. And, uh, you know, I believe he landed four or five takedowns in that fight. And that was very crucial for him to get the victory. Before that, loses a via submission to Alexander Hernandez, or Anthony Hernandez, I should say, uh, in his UFC debut. Uh, very good fight, fun fight, if I'm not mistaken. That was actually the fight of the night as well and i believe i also had the under two and a half in that fight so thankfully that ends up hitting uh park shows great all-around game right he goes uh, he shows great striking shows good uh fight iq one in, ter in terms of when to change levels and try to take his opponents down and i think that's going to come into play very well here against Stefan and chukui who in my opinion is still quite green junyun park 16 fights uh in his pro career whereas Stefan and chukui is only coming into his sixth he looks like one of those freak of nature athletes, right? The guy is just built like a brick shit house, is able to strike very well, has some good combinations, has some good patience as well when he's able to get his game going, right? If his opponents start to fight to his level of, uh, of fight, they're kind of fucked, right? Uh, Jamie Pickett was successful on one takedown, but after that, he started to fight to the pace of Tafan and Chukwi, and he just couldn't get his game going. Anytime he tried to enter, Tafan uh, met him with a perfect combination, and obviously he has a lot of sauce on his shots to truly hurt his opponent. Now, Tafan, that was his only fight that he's ever gone to a decision in his pro MMA career, and I think that's going to, you know, that, that that shows almost the greenness of him. He's only 26 years old. Uh, he's going to have a 2-inch height advantage as well as a 4-inch reach advantage here, but I think that the, the pace and pressure that uh, Park is going to put on him here might start to suck that wind a little bit, and I think that we'll see Nchuki start to give up takedowns later that this fight goes. Now, that first round is going to be a little bit of a sweat. Um, Park does have, um, you know, most of his uh, losses have come via submission. Obviously, the last one to Anthony Hernandez. And I believe the one before that was against UFC newcomer Shavkat Rachmanov, uh, who, uh, you know, they met on the regional scene. And now Rachmanov just recently made his UFC debut. I like Park here, though. You know, I, I'll absolutely say that Tafon is definitely the better striker in this situation. But I think in terms of mixing it up a full MMA game, I don't think his judo is truly going to come into play here as I think that Park will be able to get him down. Maybe not in the first round, maybe not at the beginning of the second round. But I think the longer that this fight goes, I think we'll see Park have the better cardio. And I think his ability to get the fight to the ground will help him kind of control Tafon, start to suck the wind out of uh, Tafon. And I don't think the strikes will come as fast, nor will they come as heavy the later this fight 
fight goes. And I think that if Park is able to survive that first six-ish minutes of this fight, he should pretty much have this fight wrapped up. Um, Tafan, you know, the Jamie Pickett fight, he came, came in as a minus 335 favorite. We know Jamie Pickett, you know, maybe not UFC level, uh, had a couple cracks on the contender series, never really cut it. They eventually give him the shot afterwards. Um, but I still don't think that uh, Pickett was a proper guy to go out there and fade Tafan and Chukwi with. Even after Tafan went out there and knocked out uh, Al Mutavo in their fight, uh, one of the first things I uh, tweeted out was that I couldn't wait to fade um, Tafan and Chukwi in the UFC. And even though I'm picking Junior Park to win this, win this fight, I'm still not the, uber com- the most uber confident in it to actually put the money on it. Um, just for prediction's sake, though, and how I feel in my gut, and after starting this fight, I still do lean on the Park side, as I believe his experience and ability to mix up the full MMA game is going to be the downfall of Inchukui in this fight. Now, if this fight ends in the first round, I'll eat my words, right? Uh, Tafan, obviously, four out of his five victories have come via knockout. The guy has a ton of power, and he's able to really put it on his opponents and put them out. But from the type of durability and chin durability that I've seen from Park throughout his career, seems like he, he can eat a shot. Can he eat a shot from Tafan? That's a different question that we have yet to answer, but I think we'll get that answer this weekend if he goes out there and uh, you know eats a couple of shots from Tafan is, and is actually still conscious and can get his game still going. So I'll go with, I believe his nickname is the Iron Turtle. I'll go with uh, Junior Park to win this fight. I think he's going to be able to mix it up, put a pace on uh, Tafan, and then eventually take him down and start grinding him out in the second and third rounds. So I'm going Junior Park via decision. Ryan Benoit versus Zaruk Adeshev. We got minus 145 on Benoit and plus 125 on Zaruk Adeshev. So, coming into this fight, we've got both guys coming off of two straight losses. Let's start off on the Ryan Benoit side of things. Uh, gets a close split decision loss to Haile Alatang. And then after that, the loses a decision to Tim Elliott. Now, both of those fights, he did see some adversity in terms of getting taken down and kind of controlled on the ground. Even though he did... Uh, and it might have only just been one of those three rounds that he got those adver- the, that type of adversity in those fights. But he has been recently working with Gary Tornan, I believe, uh, one of those big jiu-jitsu guys, to try to you know really refine his ground game, especially his leg lock game. But unfortunately for him, he just was not able to show it off in his last fight. Now, with, uh, with Zhuk Arshev, he's not going to have to worry about the ground at all. I expect this to be a stand-up fight. And if anything, I expect Benoit to be the one to take this fight to the ground and try to get his uh, his grappling game going. With that said, I'm not the biggest of belief that Benoit is a crazy wrestler and his ability to get the fight to the ground might be uh, not the easiest here against Rukar, so if we got to believe, has been really working to kind of round out his whole MMA game just strictly coming from the striking background, right? He has a couple fights on the glory scene, and he seems to be more of an out pointer than an actual knockout puncher. And it definitely showed, you know, in his earlier fights when he was fighting in Bellator. Now he did try to go out there and uh, show off that he can take the back and flow on the ground. He can go for takedowns and all that stuff, and that he's not just a striker. But you know, three having a three and three record is not the greatest, especially coming into the UFC as a three and one fighter and then going zero and two. Now let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Takes the short arms fight against Tyson Nam, up a weight class, gets knocked out pretty much immediately. People start writing him off immediately, right? In his next fight against Sumadarji, it was like, lock of the night, Sumadarji by knockout. But he showed off solid durability and that it was just a one-off kind of thing for the uh, that Tyson Nam knockout. And it might happen again, don't get me wrong. But I think that people are just automatically writing him off just like they did with Jacob Alcun after he got knocked out by Phil Haas in UFC 254. And they came back and had a pretty good sophomore performance against Abdul Razak al winning by decision. 
Now with uh, Adeshev, he does survive 15 minutes with Mudarji, who does have some pretty good knockouts on his record. And now with Benoit, I don't think he's going up against a guy that has some crazy knockout power anymore. And I think he has a very skeptical UFC record, right? Like his only wins have come against Freddie Serrano, uh, Ashkan Makarian, and there's another guy on his record that just really isn't into the UFC anymore. There's just... He's not beating anybody that's that's that good. Even the Sergio Pettis fight, right? He's losing that fight all the way up until the third round. Lands a beautiful head kick and gets the finish there. So very fluky-ish type of performance there for him to get the record. But once he starts taking slight steps up in competition, he starts to falter. Brandon Moreno, Haliel Tang again, maybe not the biggest step up in competition, but still ends up beating him. I'd still take Haliel Tang over Freddie Serrano and Ashka Maturian, to be honest. And then Tim Elliott, you know, we already know his style stay on the outside, very herky-jerky. And then I believe it was in the second round where he was able to secure that by pretty much taking Ryan Benoit down and just uh, grinding him out there. Uh, with Adeshev, uh, I'm expecting Adeshev to go out there and try to just outstrike him. He will have, be at a slight reach disadvantage here, but it's definitely not as bad as what he had to go up against with Tyson M and obviously what he had to go up against with Sumadarji. So I'm expecting him to see the most competitive Adeshev that we've seen to this point in time. I think he can absolutely make it competitive here against Ryan Benoit. I'm expecting Benoit to try to outstrike him, but maybe mix in a takedown here and there just to try to get his leg lock game going or his jiu-jitsu game going. But I don't think it's going to uh, work out to much avail here. I do lean on the Adeshev side here. I do, do think he's a better striker. I think he's much more technically sound. And I think he can definitely uh, really work the body of Benoit in this fight. Obviously, you got to start off with some leg kicks to try to get in on the outside, uh, to get in on uh, the inside and start trading in the pocket with the heavier hands. So I do lean Adeshev ever, ever so slightly. I will more than likely be staying away from this fight, to be honest, because there could be some volatility, not to mention the possibility of Ryan Benoit trying to grapple fuck Adeshev, and that could absolutely be a path to victory here. But I don't think his skill set in terms of grappling is truly up there to expose a guy like Zarouk. Now... I like Zeru. I think he wins by by decision here by going out there and outpointing Benoit on the feet. And I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Again, Adeshev is the dog here. It seems like there has been money coming in on Zeru as people might be fading Ryan Benoit, it seems. But a lot of people have already forgotten about Adeshev and just don't think he's UFC caliber. And obviously his record doesn't really show that. 3-3, three and three, not the greatest record to have in the UFC, but... This is the COVID era, right? He comes into the UFC with a 3-1 record. Doesn't really get the most favorable first two fights. And now this is a favorable matchup for him to, to go out there and show what he's truly made of. Now, if he can't get it done with, then he's probably going to get cut, right? There's not often that you see a fighter in the UFC that's going to have a below 500 record. We could be getting that if Ronda Marcos gets signed and gets that rematch with Luana Pinheiro due to how their fight unfortunately ended this past weekend. But I think that Adeshev will put on a solid performance Great kickboxer, great boxer, and I think it's going to showcase here against Ryan Benoit as long as this fight stays vertical for the majority of the 50 minutes. I'm taking Zaruk Adeshev to win this fight via decision. Mike Trezano versus Ladovic Klein. We got minus 245 on Ladovic Klein coming in as the biggest favorite on this card going up against Mike Trezano at plus 205. Now, let's start off on the Mike Trezano side who did win the Ultimate Fighter season, uh, but it was with a little bit of an asterisk, right? I believe Luis Pena had to pull out due to some sort of injury, and then eventually they do end up doing the, the, the rematch even after Mike Trezano goes out there and beats Joji and Eddie to win the Ultimate Fighter. They do the, the fight that was supposed to 
will take place with Luis Pedia and Mike Trezano, and Trezano still comes out on the winning end via uh, decision in that fight. He goes on and loses his next fight to Grand Dawson, but you can't really blame him too much for that one. We know Grand Dawson is a very skilled fighter and has a much better uh, grappling game than Mike Trezano, which he was able to implement, and obviously find the submission in the second round. Now, we haven't seen Mike Trezano in close to two years since he's been inside the cage, but he was scheduled to fight a couple times during that time, most recently against Rafael Alves, I believe back in February, and he had a, a minor injury that he had to deal with before he could step into the cage. Now, hopefully, Naka won. He is able to actually uh, get into the cage this weekend and fight the David Klein. Now, again, like I said at the top of the breakdown, he's coming in as the biggest underdog on the card. And uh, I find that a little bit hard to believe, and I gotta say that there is some recency bias baked into this line. Uh, Mike Trezano is a Tiger Showman trained fighter, obviously training with Lyman Good, uh, Julio Arce, Shane Burgos. Those are the guys that he trains on a day-to-day basis. So you know that he's definitely getting the solid work in and he's getting some good coaching to go with it too. Great striker. You know, he has some good combinations. He has some good confidence in his hands and he's going to need every little bit of that confidence going into this fight against Ladovic Klein. Not only will he have uh, an experience advantage, at least I should say, in regards to the uh, to, to the level of um, um, training partners that he has to work with on a day-to-day basis, but he'll also have a four-inch height advantage, which I think will come into play here. And then obviously a one-inch reach disadvantage, but I think that is not going to matter as much if he's able to kick from the outside and kind of keep Ladovic Klein at bay. Now, Klein obviously made his UFC debut, knocking out Shane Young, coming in as a minus-135 favorite, and I believe he opened up as a dog in that fight, and he got quickly shifted to a slight favorite, and definitely should have, right? He went out there and knocked the head out of uh, Shane Young, had a great performance there, and was able to start off his UFC career on the right foot. Um, 17 and 2. I believe he's actually 17 and 3. I might be off on that. Let me just confirm that number. Uh, but very solid record, you know, was a mainstay over there on the on the European scene in terms of getting his uh, work done. Uh, yeah, he's 17 and 2. I'm not sure why I thought he was 17 and 3, but uh, he's currently riding a 2, 4, 6, eight fight winning streak uh which is eventually or seven fight winning streak which eventually got him into the ufc and now he has made it eight fight wins uh or eight straight wins his one loss did come to a rear naked choke to aiden lee back in cage warriors in october of 2017 and then before that he got stopped uh by igor tarizia uh, a guy that I've never heard of who's actually only 4-2 and two at this point in time. But uh, th- I don't think that uh, Ladova will have too much to worry about in terms of a grappling-heavy approach here. So I don't think a submission is going to be too much of a worry for him here from Mike Trezano. I believe this is going to be a stand-up striking fight. I'd be very surprised if we see Klein go out there and get a first-round knockout similar to his UFC debut. As I do think that Mike Trezano will put up more of a fight than we saw from Shane Young. Now, a lot of people are calling me crazy just off the bat, especially off the stream that I did yesterday with Clint, saying that uh, I believe that Mike Trezano is a live underdog. People are thinking that, um, you know, Ladovic Klein is the biggest favorite on this card for good reason, but I do think they are being slightly shaded or jaded by that uh, UFC debut that he had. You know, let's be honest, whenever a fighter has a very stellar debut like they did, more often than not, that gets baked into a future line no matter who they're going up against. And I expect the same thing here with... uh, uh, with Klein happening and why he's coming in as a minus 245 favorite but I think people that have been around the game for a while kind of seen this happen right somebody has a great debut and then they falter in their second fight which is why I'm seeing a little bit of love coming on Mike Trezano at least from some of the friends that I've been talking to uh, and have interest in playing uh, dogs with value now 
you know, I'm not saying that Klein has no no chance to win this fight and he should be an underdog in this fight. I think he should be a slight favorite. I think he should be around minus 130, minus 150, especially if you take into consideration the lengthy layoff that Mike Trezano has had from the, from the cage. But I do think he has a good enough amount of experience, good enough amount of training partners and coaches to keep him sharp and ready to get into the into the cage and fight pretty much any opponent that's going to be opposite opposite of him. Now, like I said, both guys have solid combinations, good work. They throw with some heat. I'd say Klein throws with a little bit more heat, and uh, he might have a better forward movement here. But I think that might walk in walk him into the striking of Mike Trezano. Like I said, he's going to have a four inch height advantage, and that could definitely come into play, especially when he's going to be looking to counter Ludovic Klein on the inside. Um, very close fight. Very, very close fight, but for some reason, I am leaning on the Mike Trezano side here. I do think that he pulls off the upset here, and I do think it's going to come via decision, as I do think he has the better striking technique, um, and I think he has the, the, the better training partners. I think he has the better uh, coaches, and I think that's going to play very well very well into this fight when they devise a game plan to try to stop the forward movement and the heavy striking abilities of, of Ludovic Klein. Um I like the, the cardio of Trezon as well, too. That could definitely come into play here. I don't think it's by a large margin. I don't think that this is going to look like, you know, th this isn't going to look like uh, Harjerio de Lima going into the second and third rounds for Ludovic Klein. But I do think that Trezon will have a slight advantage there. Um, if this was Klein's first fight in the UFC and we didn't see that Shane Young fight, he'd probably only be a minus 120, minus 130 favorite. If not, I think he'd actually be the underdog going into this fight as a lot of people do go out there and very much, um, underrate Mike Trezano, right? Even Trezano was, if I'm not mistaken, he was a slight underdog to Rafael Alves, who seems to be a killer on the regional scene, but has some flaws of his own. And I know a lot of people that were on Trezano in that fight too. I was probably going to be on Trezano in that spot too, but I had not gotten into the tape by the time that fight had gotten pulled. But I do think that this is a good spot for Trezano to pull off the uh, the upset. Um, I think he gets the win here. Klein has accrued a good amount of experience on the regional scene, but now he's stepping into the UFC, uh, and I think that it's going to be a little bit different for him, especially going up against more well-rounded fighters like uh, a Mike Trezano that he'll be going up against this weekend. So I am going Mike Trezano to pull off the upset as the biggest underdog on the card. Um, am I putting my money on it? I'm not 100% sold as of yet, but I do believe that he is the value side here, and I do think that he could uh, definitely spring uh, spring an upset, and if especially if the lineup stays the way that he is, and he is the first fight of the night, I think we might have some busted parlays right off this first fight of the night. So I'm going to go Trezano, and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Kyle Dawkins versus Phil Hawes. We got minus 135 on Dawkins and plus 115 on Megatron. Phil Hawes. Let's start off on the Phil Hawes side of things, who's coming off his first ever decision victory. Not just first ever decision victory, but first ever fight that's gone to a decision ever. <laughs> he got knocked out by um, Julian Marquez, and then obviously uh, one more loss he had uh, was earlier in his career, or the fight right before that he got guillotine choked by Lewis Taylor in the second round. But if I'm not mistaken, that was the first fight he ever had go into the third round, and he actually pulled off a decision victory there. And man, it was looking hairy in the last couple seconds of that fight not to mention any time that Imovov was able to back up Phil Haas it looked scary for Phil Haas but he had his wrestling he had his strength and he had his ability to overwhelm his opponent with his intimidating stature and his and his uh clinch game that really uh allowed him to grind out that victory and get that uh decision victory now he won that fight via majority decision I believe one of the judges did uh, give if I'm not mistaken one of those rounds was a draw let me actually just pull that up real quick um 
but uh, we did see him struggle when the fight was at distance. Simovov was landing great punches. Uh, and of course, we don't have specific um, scorecards here. But one judge, Junichiro Kamijo, actually gave it a 28-28. I got to believe that round three, they probably gave to Imamov 10-8 due to how hurt Phil Haas had looked. But... That's exactly what the game is, right? Phil Hawes is able to get able to get his game going right away and knock out his opponents, which is pretty much how he's been getting a lot of his victories earlier on in his career. But it seemed like he tried doing that a little bit here, but then he started to lean on his wrestling and he started to lean on his more, uh, you know, his grapple-heavy style and his ability to overpower his opponents. Now, Imovov seemed a little bit lost in those situations whenever Phil Hawes was able to close the distance and start grappling with him. And it was absolutely mind-blowing to me that Imovov was willingly starting to clinch up every time he had heard Phil Hawes in that third round. Um, Phil Hawes, good wrestler, like I said, uh, but his gas tank, in my opinion, is still very skeptical. Um, you know, it's funny, after that first round, you see him raise his hands as he's going back to his corner, and then at the ending of the fight, you see him barely able to raise his hand because the guy is absolutely gassed, and I think he still has cardio issues. I think he was just going up against uh, not the greatest opponent to truly exploit that from him. You know, a lot of that fight was on the ground, or up against the cage, and Imovov had no idea how to get out of there. Whereas Dawkins, I think, is going to be way more educated in those uh, situations and be able to take advantage of that and truly put a Haas into, into some more uh, troubling uh, situations. Now, going on the Kyle Dawkins side, we obviously know him uh, from his uh, amazing UFC debut, a crazy fight of the night performance. I believe they got fight of the night that night when he uh, debuted against Brendan Allen as a pretty significant underdog at plus 290. He came in and he put on a fight of a lifetime, right? Brendan Allen was able to um, cut him open with a, uh, an elbow in the first round and then he fought through it the entire time very close fight going into that third round and pretty much he you know he he had the back of brendan allen for the majority of that third run up into the last 15 or 20 -ish seconds where allen was able to get out uh from a bad position and then start raining down shots uh kaldakis obviously had a lot of success in his next fight coming in as a minus 270 favorite against dustin stoltzfoots and was able to uh win that fight via decision too but we saw some good things from his striking game right he keeps his hands up uh doesn't really seem to uh take damage too bad um obviously we did see brendan allen hurt him with a big knee but uh he was able to push through it and you know, uh, still ended up losing that fight via decision, but just didn't end up getting finished. Um, but, you know, showed great great hand techniques and, and striking in the Dustin Stoltzfus fights. And even then when, when the fight did hit the ground, he started to show off his black belt, which I think is going to come very much in handy here against Phil Hawes. Now, the the spot that I like the most in this fight is the under two and a half. And I'm surprised that Bet Online actually has released the total as two and a half and not one and a half. But I'm expecting that two and a half to start taking some steam. Before I had actually looked at uh, what the line was, it was minus 155 for the under two and a half. But let's see if that line has started to take some more action. Still at minus, uh, it is still at minus 155. So I'm hoping that the rest of the bookies will open it at two and a half as well, as I do think that's the, you know, that that line is a, is a line I'd be very confident in, in taking the under two and a half, as I believe it'll be early. Phil Hawes, he'd probably get the knockout if he gets the knockout at all. And if he's not able to put away Kyle Dawkins, I think we'll see Dawkins do very well in terms of putting the pressure on Phil Hawes in, uh, later in round one, round two, and then obviously early round three, if he's able to get it to round three. Uh, and I think he could find a finish in some of those spots. You know, eight out of the 10 victories on Kyle Dawkins' record have come via knockout or uh, via submission and I think only one let me just confirm that three out of his 
11 fights have gone to a decision. Uh, he has eight knockout or sorry, eight submissions, two decision victories. Whereas Phil Laws, like I said, the only time he's gone to a decision was the last fight against uh, um, Nasruddin Imavov. Now, I think Kyle Dawkins with his better jujitsu, better, uh, you know, knowledge in the clinch game. Uh, and better cardio, which is the main thing here, is truly going to bring out the worst in Phil Hawes. And I think that we'll see Phil Hawes actually succumb to a submission here. Um, I want to take Kyle straight, but I wouldn't lie if I said that Phil Hawes' power didn't um, concern me a little bit. I think it's going to, um, it, it could come into play here, which is why I feel much more comfortable with the under two and a half than I do feel with playing Daukis, and even Daukis to win by submission, I think is around plus 235, uh, Daukis by submission, plus 375 actually, and I think that's a great line as well, as I do think that's the spot that he's going to go out there and try to explode against Phil Haas, who's just going to be absolutely gassed uh, trying to deal with Kyle Daukis. Now, even if we see Phil Haas get on top of Daukis, I think we'll see Daukis either uh, pull up a submission or, um, you know, uh, get a reversal and start doing some work from on top. Even Delkis by T, uh, TKO is plus 500. I don't think that's a bad line either, considering that he could possibly get a, a GNP finish as well, as Phil Haas might be too tired to try to get back to his feet, try to defend, or even try to get the position back. We've seen Delkis on his back, and he's quite offensive, and I think that alone is going to get Phil Haas you know, tired and stress him out a little bit more, trying to control Delkis on the ground, and that's where I think that the under 2.5 truly comes into play here. You know, Delkis, he had that crazy fight against Brendan Allen, like I said at the top, and both guys were throwing everything at each other, but they showed that no matter what they were going through that they were able to go through the adversity and get their dominant positions like Kyle Dukas was able to do in that third round so I, I like Dukas here a lot I, I really really do but I will say that the Phil Haas power does have me give me give me some pause uh, a little bit uh, so I'd rather go with the under two and a half here and as long as that's the widely available line that's the one that I'll probably looking like uh, looking to 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 bet here and that's the one that I like the most so uh, I'll take Kyle to survive that initial onslaught from Phil Haas and then slap on a submission probably in the second or early third round here hopefully in the second so we're not sweating the under two and a half but I do like Kyle Dukas via submission Big Ben Rothwell versus Philippe Linz. We got minus 115 on Big Ben and minus 105 on Philippe Linz. And this line has pretty much been bouncing back and forth over the last uh, couple days, I should say. Now, both of these guys were scheduled to fight a couple months ago. I believe there was a COVID-related issue that uh, forced one of them out of the fight. Now they are rescheduled to fight this weekend. And it's still just as questionable of a fight as it was then as it is now so uh, not um too much to dissect in terms of really truly figuring out and predicting who's going to win this fight because all in all i'm going to tell you guys to stay the fuck away from this fight to be honest we'll start off on the big ben rothwell side of things who's coming off a loss to marcin tabura and that was a fight that i ever so slightly backed him there as a minus 145 favorite blew up in my face and we just didn't see the ben rothwell that you know is successful in the cage the one that was able to get wins over over in St. Pru and then obviously that weird win over Stefan Struve where he got uh, where he sacked Stefan Struve a couple times got a point taken away and then came out like a bat out of hell and was able to get the finish relatively quickly after that but uh in the Tybora fight he got pretty much beaten all aspects he was getting outstruck he got taken down a couple times and I truly thought uh Marcin was going to struggle in terms of taking down Rothwell but as Rothwell starts to get up up there in age, he's now 39 years old, it seems like his takedown defense is starting to plummet a little bit, as well as his uh, jiu-jitsu abilities, you know, especially the chokes that he was able to put, uh, I believe, uh, against Travis Brown and um, Josh Barnett. 
some of those front chokes. I, I even want to think it's Matt Mitrione as well that he was able to submit. But we don't see any of that threat from Ben Rothwell anymore. One thing that is obviously uh, pretty much uh, in in a heavyweight's corner, no matter what, is going to be that power. So that's always something we need to worry about, especially with Philippe Lenz who's coming off that knockout loss to Tanner Bozier, who's not really known to be much of a knockout puncher. So that is a little bit of a concern going into this fight with Philippe Lenz. But Big Ryan Rothwell just doesn't seem to pull the trigger. And every fight he says, I'm going to pull the trigger. Every fight he says, I'm going to come out and you know look like my peak days, one of my heydays. But we just don't get that performance. On the Philippe Lins <clears throat> side of things, he's coming off of two straight fi- uh, losses now. Obviously, that Andre Arlovsky fight, which was his UFC debut, and then obviously that knockout that I just talked about to Tanner Bozer. So he's winless inside the UFC, and we're talking about a guy who's coming over from the PFL as a highly touted guy. You know, he had some success in the WSOF, I believe, as well. And I think that he's going to, you know, he seemed to have a solid, um, you know, uh, uh, ceiling coming into the UFC. Just look at his odds going into the Arlovsky fight, right? He's a minus 235 favorite. And, you know, say what you want about Arlovsky at this day and age, but he's still going out there and putting on competitive performances, which is why he was able to squeak out the decision victory over Philippe Lenz. People can say what they want about the the judging there, but Philippe Lenz tends to fight pretty close to his... um, opposition's level um he doesn't have crazy output he seems to put together shots and and is a little bit more calculated in his approach and sometimes that kind of puts him behind on the volume and the pace and that might uh seep into the judges minds exactly how i did in the in, in the andre Arlovsky fight but when he does actually explode and get those combinations off they are relatively effective and you know sometimes they'll find the finish or sometimes it would do enough damage to kind of sway the judges. With Ben Rothwell, though, you're not getting much output recently, right? So this might be a stalemate in a sense, but it's going to be, it comes down to who lets off the better shots. Now, Ben Rothwell brings like a very unorthodox approach to his striking style. So that might be a little bit different here for uh, Linz to worry about. But I still do trust the approach that we're going to be seeing from Linz that, than what we've been seeing from Ben Rothwell as of late. Um, my only concern with Philippe Linz is that he could die at any second. And what I mean by that is like uh, if Ben Rothwell decides to let his hands go, he could absolutely land a big bomb on Philippe Linz and put him down and make it a, you know, take the judges out of it per se but i do expect this fight to go to a judge's scorecard i do expect philippe Lins to go out there and land the better strikes i don't expect it to be a highly paced fight the over one and a half and and two and a half is usually not too bad of a spot to to consider when you're looking at ben rothwell fights and uh and philippe Lins fights and this is another one of those where i expect it to go you know the full 15 minutes them landing very minimal shots but i'm expecting the bigger and better shots to be coming from Lins here one thing i would like to see him kind of implement in this fight would be to go out there and try to take ben rothwell down like i said his takedown defense is ever de- ever depleting ever diminishing and if marcin taburo was as successful as he was with kind of holding down ben rothwell and getting his game going from the top position i think we can see the same thing here from Philippe Lins. So my ultimate pick is going to be Philippe Lins. I think he's going to win this fight by decision, but I just don't have the utmost confidence in it. So it will probably be a pass all in all, but I will go with Philippe Lins by decision. Angela Hill versus Marina Rodriguez. We got minus 165 on Amanda Hibas and plus 145 on Angela Hill. And this is a line that I feel like has been taking some action over the last little while. Amanda Hibas back up to minus 175, I think. But she opened up at minus 245 and we've seen some action coming on Angela Hill and I believe that's the correct way that this line should be moving so Amanda Hebus last time around we saw her go out there and get knocked out by uh 
Marina Rodriguez, and that was her first ever UFC loss. Not to mention, you know, she had a lot of success in that first round with getting that takedown and then eventually grinding out Marina Rodriguez in that first round. But in that second round, she played a little bit too much on the feet, caught a beautiful counter from Marina Rodriguez, and then eventually, you know, she was followed up and finished twice. Thanks, her, but it is what it is. Uh, good on Michelle Rodriguez to get, uh, or Marina Rodriguez to get the finish the way that she does. Now, up until that point, Amanda Hebus's record against, you know, uh, the rest of the division was great, but like I felt like the level of competition was somewhat lacking, especially in the areas that she was able to keep the fight in. So like, let's even just start at the Mackenzie Dern fight, right? A fight that potentially or mo mostly played out on the feet. Uh, and we know that Mackenzie Dern is mainly a jiu-jitsu player who's just working now on her striking. And back then, she wasn't really working on it as much as she is now. And Amanda Hibas, you know, she looked good and everything looked great. She looked very comfortable on the feet. But of course, you're going to look really comfortable on the feet against somebody that, you know, that, that, that they're not that great in the striking realm. So I think that a lot of people were kind of had the, uh, you know, I, I love using this term, but I think a lot of people are honey-dicked into th thinking that Amanda Hibas had this crazy striking game. And don't get me wrong, she has decent striking, she has good enough striking, but I think that once she starts fighting fighters with better striking and are, have the ability to keep the fight on the feet, then she's going to start to struggle. Then let's move on to the Randa Marcos fight, right? She had a lot of success on the feet. Randa Marcos really not that great on the feet. And then even when the fight hit the ground, she was able to accumulate, I think, close to seven minutes or seven and a half minutes of control time against Randa Marcos, not pulling off a submission there. Paige Van Zandt comes in as a minus 700 favorite. Amanda Hibas quickly grounds the fight and then taps her out with an armbar relatively quickly. So we didn't really get to see her truly challenged in many uh, aspects of the MMA game. Now the Marina Rodriguez fight is where we truly started testing the striking realm. And again, it was Hibas taking too long to take the fight to the ground in the second round. And uh, Rodriguez really showing off that she was the better striker in that fight, which is why she was able to get the knockout. Now here against Angela Hill, Probably the best all-around fighter that Marie, uh, uh, Amanda Hibas is going to have gone up against um, in her UFC career. Let's be honest, right? Like um, Angela Hill, great striker, uh, you know, a lot of volume. The only issue with her game is that she usually has close fights, which is why she sometimes she might be getting robbed in the Claudia Gadelia fight and she might be getting robbed in the Michelle Watterson fight. But she had a pretty decisive victory over Ashley Yoder last time around. And she had a lot of success in terms of hurting these women too, right? She hurt Ashley Yoder quite a lot, especially to the body and then obviously to the head. The Claudia Gadelia fight records a knockdown in that fight, really hurts her and busts her up. Even busted up Michelle uh, Watterson pretty well on the feet in their five-round war. Um... I think this is a bad matchup for Amanda Hibas. Like, Angela Hill, in my opinion, has better uh, better and better takedown defense. I'm not a big believer in Amanda Hibas' grappling or uh, wrestling game, I should say. Obviously, she's a high-level jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, but I will say she allowed uh, Randa Marcos to get out of that fight with seven and a half minutes of control time and no submission victory there. I'm just going to lay that out for you guys, just saying. But Angela Hill, a great get-up game, uh, improving takedown defense, and obviously the better striker in this fight against Amanda Hibas. And I think that the longer she keeps this fight vertical, the more dangerous it's going to be for Amanda Hibas. And I truly think that this is a fight that Angela Hill could potentially find a finish. A lot of people were thinking after her finishes over uh, Hannah Cyphers and, and the Ariane Carnalosi one that uh, Angela Hill was starting to turn this uh, new 
new chapter into you know becoming a finisher and really sitting down on her punches and really trying to go for the kill more so than she used to and you know it hasn't really played out for her as she hasn't gotten a knockout victory or a finish since the Hannah Cyphers fight five fights ago but she has also gone two and two in that amount of time right level of competition has been quite decent as well Loma Lukbunmi who's been making great improvements in a lot of her fights Claudia Godel your top five fighter Michelle Watterson another main event slot very tough fighter herself and then Ashley Yoder you know she had her hurt her several times and uh she was doing some good work in that fight but again in this one with Hibas I think that she's going to truly expose the the striking deficiencies that Hibas has on the feet she has a nice spin back kick and you know she looks really good and comfortable on the feet when she's fighting girls like Mackenzie Dern and Randa Marcos but now that she's fighting a legitimate Muay Thai fighter and a legitimate kickboxer like Angela Hell, who has the ability to keep the fight vertical, I think Amanda Hibas is going to struggle here. And I think that we're going to see the, the deficiencies in her striking defense. And I truly think that we can see Angela Hill go out there and get another finish like she did in the Hannah Cyphers fight. Now, the Hannah Cyphers one, if you guys remember, I believe that one came out, uh, came uh, on the ground via ground and bound. I expect this one to be on the feet. I expect her to clip her with a couple punches uh, and, and put her out. Now, a lot of people are thinking like, you know, what are we truly extracting uh, from, uh, you know, this matchup? And why is uh, Angela Hill getting a lot of the action, considering that the only difference that we've seen in Amanda Hebus's game is that she got clipped by uh, Marina Rodriguez and put out? That's exactly what. Like, not just that, but like in prior fights, like even getting finished by Poliana Battaglia, or sorry, Poliana Vienna on the feet um, in her regional days. You know, like since then, up until a Marina Rodriguez fight, she hadn't fought a competent striker like Marina Rodriguez or Angela Hill, and that's my qualm here. I be I believe in the takedown defense of Angela Hill. I know I was a little bit harsh on her going into the Ashley Yoder fight. That was more so line based. Like if that fight was closer to the line, like minus one fifty, minus one seventy for Angela Hill, I'd be a little bit more on her boat. But here, coming in as an underdog coming in as experienced as she is and coming in again you know with the level of competition that she's fought in the past and not to mention the skill set that she has to you know oppose uh amanda hibas here i think angela hill comes out with the victory and not just a victory a dominant one in that too so i'm going to go angela hill here i'm going to take her to win by ko as i believe that she has the better faster hands i think that she's going to be able to catch her hibas on a counter once again as long as she's able to keep this fight vertical, which, you know, I, I believe she has a good enough chance in doing so, uh, I think we'll see Angela Hill put together some good combinations and eventually catch uh, Amanda Hebus on the feet with something and, uh, and put her out. People want to call Angela Hill pebble fist and all that, but she's shown that she can rock and hurt a lot of women. Now, her finishing instincts might not be there, but I think with uh, the greenness, well, I don't want to call it greenness because, again, Hebus does show some good things on the feet, but when she's going up against competition that is giving her resistance on the feet, I think she's truly going to struggle. And if she doesn't have the takedown to bail her out here, like I don't think she will against Hill, who, again, improving uh, takedown defense and improving get-up game, I think Hebus is truly going to struggle. I do think she's going to start to stress. I think her cardio is going to take a little bit of a hit. And the longer this fight goes, I do um, lean Angela Hill. So I'm going to go Angela Hill, probably second or third round TKO. And I think this like image that people have of Amanda Hebus is going to completely get thrown into the dirt after she gets finished here by Angela Hill. So once again, I'll go... I'll go third round. Third round TKO for Angela Hill. Gregor Gillespie versus Carlos Diego Fajera. We got minus 170 on Gregor and plus 150 on Diego Fajera. Let's start off on the Gregor Gillespie side of things who was supposed to fight Matt, uh, Matt Riddell. No, Brad Riddell. Um, less than two months ago, uh, I believe Riddell or somebody from his team 
tested positive for COVID and they had to pull that fight off. Riddell is not scheduled to fight somebody else. And Gregory Gillespie now draws Carlos Diego Ferreira, who's a you know, himself also coming off a loss now. Well, Gregory Gillespie, we know what we're getting, right? Somebody who can wrestle very well, has great chain wrestling, is probably one of the best wrestling games outside of Khabib, who's now retired, and obviously, obviously Islam Mahachev. But I think that it's going to be very hard for Diego Ferreira to deal with the grappling game of Gregor Gillespie here. Not the last time we saw Gillespie, I believe, was way back at UFC 244. The same night we had the BMF title on the line between Jorge Vasvidal and Nate Diaz. And that night... Kevin Lee absolutely put the lights out of Gregor Gillespie, and I gotta believe that it's been more than enough time for Gregor to get his wits back about him and get back into the cage. Now we're coming up closer to an, a year and a half layoff now for Mr. Gregor, and I think that it is a solid amount of time for him to get his wits back about him and get back into competition. Now, Carlos Diego Feira, I don't think he's a great uh, knockout puncher. He has some decent combinations, so I don't think we have to worry about as much of a knockout threat here from Diego Feira than we did have to worry about with Brad Riddell. Uh, the one thing we do have to worry about a little bit more now with Fajera compared to what we had to with Riddell was the black belt in jiu-jitsu for Fajera but I think it's something that we'll see Gregor be able to deal with relatively easily now I don't think that Gregor is belted as highly as Diego Fajera but I do think he's one of the better wrestling jiu-jitsu players that we have in the UFC considering his ability to you know dominate positions have good success from on top and obviously find submissions in some of his UFC fights as well a lot of people are a little bit high on the under two and a half in this fight. Me, not so much. I know it's at plus 160-ish or somewhere around that point. But I think that Diego Ferreira is durable enough to uh, deal with whatever Gregor brings to him on the ground. Um, Gregor's uh, striking game is slightly getting better, even though he got knocked out by Kevin Lee with that head kick. We did see him use that jab very, very well. And it absolutely bust up the nose of Kevin Lee before he ultimately got head kicked and sent into orbit. But I think that's a game, uh, that's a part of Gregor's game that he's trying to um, groom out so that he can set up his takedowns a little bit better but at the end of the day all of his opponents know that he's going to be looking for the takedown and try to get this to the ground and obviously um, you know use his top game find a submission get that ground and pound whatever it may be but just keep his opponent grounded I believe the reason the line is minus 170 plus 150 right now in favor of Gregor is uh, more so to do with Dariush's performance against Fejera last time around. Now, if this was uh, Fejera coming off of that win of Anthony Pettis and on that winning streak against uh, Gillespie, I think we'd see this closer to a pick'em line. Uh, Benio Dariush did a really good job in terms of grounding the fight when he needed to, especially when the fight was getting a little bit too hot and heavy in the striking room. I think that Diego Ferreira has a really good pressure game that he's been developing ever since joining Fortis MMA, and that's allowed him to really truly, you know, um, round out his game, which is why he was able to put together that winning streak that he had before he ran into Benio Dariush. You know, a lot of his fights, he was, you know, shucking off takedowns and putting the pressure on his opponents and, you know, leg kicking his opponents and very much getting into their face and throwing combinations and didn't let them get comfortable. But I think he's going to struggle with that here as I believe that Gregor's takedown game, his ability to change levels and really just get his game going is going to be too much for uh, for Fajera. Obviously, the lack of takedown defense that we saw from uh, Fajera against Darius obviously plays very heavily into this fight against Gregor Gillespie because you got to believe if Darius is having success in terms of getting Fajera down, I think we'll see the same thing here with Gillespie. One of the things that we saw very well from Benny as well was not just wrestling, but his chain wrestling. And that's something that Gillespie is probably the best at in the UFC. And that's exactly what got Fajera down. And that's exactly what I'm expecting Gregor to do here to Fajera too. So he would go in on a, on a double leg and Fajera would do a good job in terms of digging the underhook and not just get, and then uh, Darius would just not give up 
on that takedown. He turned into an outside trip and then eventually on top of Fajera. That's exactly what I'm expecting Gillespie to do here as well. I think he'll have good enough top pressure that he'll be able to deal with the black belt in jiu-jitsu of Fajera. And I think he'll eventually, uh, you know, just... just stay heavy on top not do too much in terms of giving Fajera enough space to one throw up a submission or two get back to his feet so I don't know if we'll truly see a a, a, a finish here from Gregor Gillespie who's you know mainly a finisher a lot of his fights have come via finish and he's very proficient on the ground in finding that finish but I think that this is the highest level opponent he's faced outside of Kevin Lee and that fight didn't even hit the ground so Gregor's going to have to be a little bit better on, on the ground in terms of being a little bit more efficient, being a little bit safer, not going for as many risks as he did when he was fighting guys like Jason Gonzalez, Jordan Rinaldi, Vince Pichel, Yancy Medeiros. Like those guys he can handle on the feet. Those guys he can go for the submission or he can go for the TKO, go for the ground to pound, whatever the hell it is. But with Fajera here, I think he's going to struggle to do so, uh, which is why I'd rather go with Gillespie by decision here rather than Gillespie by finish. So I do like Gillespie. I don't think that the layoff is going to be too much for him here. I think this is a great style matchup for him. As long as he's able to ground Fajera, which I think he'll be able to, he should be able to grind out this fight, and he should be able, be able to take home a decision victory uh, and his first after that, that devastating knockout to Kevin Lee. So once again, I'm going to go Gregor Gillespie, and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Marcos Hajirio de Lima versus Maurice Green. We got minus 190 on Hajirio de Lima and plus 165 on Maurice Green. Let's start off with the crochet boss, Maurice Green, who seems to have found or thinks that he's found the elixir of youth uh, going out there to Jackson Wink. Uh, you know, he, he did win that fight against Gian Vellante, probably one of the most sloppiest heavyweight fights we've ever seen. And then he goes out there and gets finished by Greg Hardy in his next fight. So I believe he's one and one now in his last two fights with Jackson Wink. This will hopefully be the uh, rubber fight for him to see if it truly works out for him. But I don't think it's really going to work out, to be honest. Now, he looks like in great shape, right? He looks like he's in solid shape. If you guys creep his IG, he's got some abs. He's gotten rid of a little bit of the flabs that he's got on him. But how is that going to translate to his performance inside the octagon because that truly means the most right if it came down to physicality to fought in chukui and you all romero and these guys will all be champions undefeated at this point in time but that's just not how it works maurice green normally is a little bit more of a mobile heavyweight especially at six seven with an 82 inch reach not often you see guys that are that big that are as mobile as him but he just doesn't seem to be the most effective with it right tries to go out there and get get his kicks going, try to stay on the outside, get his jab going. And he seem, he talks about how he has an underrated submission game, and he does have two submission victories in the UFC on his record. But let's be honest, that last one wasn't really a submission over Gian Vellante. That was more of a TKO due to exhaustion, if anything. Um, Green is really looking to get his uh, game going, right? This is a fight that he needs to win, otherwise there will be two straight losses for him. I think it might even be the end of the road in the UFC for him. Uh, and it's a very tough fight against uh, Hajario de Lima, who, you know, is a very tough out when he really wants to be a tough out. Hajario de Lima, obviously, last time out there, got forearm choked by Alexander Romanov. Very unfortunate fight for him, but he did show off some good things. We show he showed that he still has some massive heavy leg kicks, which would definitely help him in this fight against Green in terms of slowing down the movement of Green. And then he still has some big power in his punches as he was able to land cleanly on Romanov a couple of times. And I think if those shots landed on Green, Green will probably get dropped on his butt and will probably get ground and pounded. Uh, Delima seems to have a very poor gas tank, so if the, this fight reaches the second round, you got to believe that uh, Maurice Green will probably have the advantage. 
And I was telling people, you know, um, when I was just talking about uh, some of the lines on this card, I was talking about if this was MMA lock of the night in 2020, I would be absolutely all over the under one and a half in this fight. But I just don't trust either of these guys to get the finish, even though I think that's the most likely outcome for either guy. Uh, I think, however, though, it's just going to be Delima. You know, he says that he's a black belt, but getting forearm choked is not the greatest look. But how good is a grappling credentials or a black belt if you don't have the cardio to back it up? And that's always been the bane of his existence is that he just can never get his cardio up, right? The only time we've seen him go to a decision as of late was his fight against Adam Wizardcheck, where he was able to grind him out. But that one, he was able to kind of just grind out, right? Like he didn't have too much exertion. Here, I think that green is going to make him work. And if he doesn't get him out of there in that first round, it's going to get very hairy in the second and third rounds. Now, if you're betting this fight pre-flop, all praise to you. I would also suggest that you go out there and hit up 1-800-GAMBLERS anonymous or whatever the hell that line is because there is no way you can have a solid lean on either side here pre-flop. Uh, again, you're, you're banking on Jerry Delima to get that first round knockout, so you might as well take plus 150 on Delima in round one. Otherwise, go out there and look at green round two and round three, because if this reaches the judges' scorecards, I'd be very surprised, and I'd be, uh, I would be I think that we'd see green uh, put up the pace a little bit more in round two to really get... Uh, Delima out of there but I do think it's Delima that's going to land the devastating leg kicks in that first round it's going to debilitate Green it will probably end up dropping him too and then we should see him kind of you know get on top of uh, uh, Maurice Green and start raining down some shots or he might even end up giving up a submission of some sorts as we have seen Green somewhat active and offensive off of his back in some of his fights so i'm not going to completely write him off here but this is a slop fest waiting to happen this is a complete dumpster fire of a matchup and i you know i i'm not putting serious money on either side here but i do think the favorite is the rightful favorite here in delima but he really only has one round to get it done so if you are looking to back delima just hit that plus 150 in round one that's the best value you'll probably get and uh, i think it's the most likely outcome here i think he drops green either with leg kicks or a punch early here and then he goes in for a ground and pound or finds a uh, maybe an arm triangle choke or something like that that that's definitely something that he has up his sleeve and definitely i think something that he could uh you know bring into this game and use effectively so i don't think the work at jackson wink is going to help out uh, green too much here and i think that ultimately we'll see how jerry Delima get that first round finish via let's say ground and pound neil magni versus jeff neil we got minus 190 on uh jeff neil and then we got plus 165 on neil magni now i'm gonna try to go with uh first name for uh, Jeff and then last name for Magni so though we don't get too many uh, too many confusing parts in this breakdown but I do like the dog here Neil Magni and the one thing that really messes me up here is the fact that he's only 33 years old he's been in this UFC since 2012 back when he was on the ultimate fighter and was able to get back into the UFC even though he didn't end up winning the the, the ultimate fight at that time but he's pretty much carved out a really good UFC career for himself which is why he's able to still stick around nine years later even though he hasn't even secured himself a title shot now he's had a couple main eventing slots and some of them he's faltered in some of them he's ended up winning but he still goes out there and shows a pretty good game plan every single time maybe not so much in that Michael Chiesa fight where he just continuously kept wrapping up on Michael Chiesa which is the realm that Chiesa wanted to get into and uh, he just found himself on bottom pretty much every single time or getting reversed or getting swept and it just didn't work out for him at all so very very unfortunate 
showcase for him last time around against Michael Chiesa in a main eventing spot. But uh, that three-fight winning streak he had before that showcased what Neo Magni does well, and it's that Neo Magni style. It's just moving forward, staying in your opponent's face, jabbing you to death, throwing a couple leg kicks out there. You know, in that Anthony Rocco Martin fight, a lot of people were worried about Magni getting his leg chopped off. It was actually him landing the much better calf kicks and leg kicks, which was kind of debilitating the forward movement of Anthony Rocco Martin. Then the Robbie Lawler fight, right? Very one-sided, was able to nullify the big power punches of Robbie Lawler, put him up against the cage, take him down, just absolutely crowd him on the feet so he couldn't get any punches going. Um, that's the type of style that I expect to go out there and beat a guy like Jeff Neal. Now, Jeff Neal took his first loss in the UFC to Stephen Wonderboy Thompson last time around in his main event slot back on December 19th of last year, and that was a learning lesson for him, right? Wonderboy Thompson is not somebody that should be overlooked, and Wonderboy Thompson is not one of those guys that is just going to roll over and let a prospect uh, knock him out or just beat him. Wonderboy Thompson brings a very unorthodox approach to his fights, and it's a little, very hard for a lot of people to really solve it and try to get the best of him, which is why Wonderboy Thompson was able to pretty much, you know, run away with that fight, if you want to call it that. He wins a decision victory in that. And that fight was lined at a pick A lot of people thought that Jeff Neal had a really good shot to win that fight, and how could you not, right? The guy was on a tear. He's definitely one of the hottest prospects in the UFC, but he is beatable. As we've seen, he's lost to Kevin Holland on his regional scene uh, and also had one more loss on the regional scene before coming to the UFC so it's not like Jeff Neal is untouchable and I feel like people are making him sound like that in this fight against Neil Magny whereas stylistically I think it's a very very tough fight let's just look at his uh, Jeff Neal's last five fights right Frank Camacho striker he was able to get the best of him and obviously knock him out Bilal Muhammad great all-around fighter don't get me wrong I don't want to shit on Bilal at all here you know Jeff Neal was only a minus 200 favorite there but Bilal went 0 of 5 or 0 of 6 on takedowns in that fight could not ground it whatsoever. But Bilal Muhammad is one of those fighters that's like a jack of all trades. Really good at everything, but or sorry, good at everything, but not great at one thing. So I don't think he was the greatest at ter in terms of mixing up the takedowns, but behind his strikes to truly get Jeff Neal down and cause him problems, which is why Jeff Neal was really able to get his uh, shots off on the feet and really hurt him uh, at that spot. Then the Nico Price fight, you know what I mean? Jeff Neal put, starches him. Uh, Mike Perry starches him. Wonderboy Thompson, that's where he runs into trouble. That's where he fight, fights somebody that doesn't have just that rudimentary MMA style or that striking style. And Neil Magny fits that mold of just guys that can mix it up on you and truly make you drown out there. And I think that's what he's going to do here against Jeff Neal. You know, the fight that we saw with Lee Jing Liang and uh, Neil Magny, now a lot of people might want to shit on uh, Lee for that fight in terms of his approach, which was grappling with Jeff Neal or with Neil Magny. And that's not exactly what you want to do. That's not how you want to approach a fight with Neil. You want to chop him down from the outside just as Santiago Ponzinibbio was able to just how Lorenz Larkin was able to you know uh they they really started off with the calf kicks and the leg kicks and it debilitated Neil Magny and then it allowed them to get their punches off which ultimately knocked out Neil Magny the other guys that have been able to beat Neil were guys that took the grapple heavy approach right Michael Chiesa Damian Maia Rafael Dos Anjos those guys were able to submit him or win by decision like Michael Chiesa did last time around what does Jeff Neil bring to the table Pretty much just striking, right? He doesn't go out there for takedowns. He doesn't look for the clinch really much. He, he you know, not much, a huge calf kicker, leg kicker. And I think that's great here for Neil Magni as long as he just moves forward and, and implements his style like he, he does. Get that jab in your face, push you up against the cage. Maybe get a couple of takedowns. I think takedowns might be a little bit harder for him in this fight. But 
He has a four-inch height advantage. He's going to have a five-inch reach advantage. I think he's going to use every inch of that to keep uh, either Jeff Neal on the outside with his jab or stay on the inside and really rough off Jeff Neal in those clinch positions. I I'm a big Jeff Neal fan. Don't get me wrong, but I think stylistically, Neal Magny can bring out the worst in fighters in the exact. I believe that's what's going to happen this weekend with Magny being a very live dog. So I do like Neal here. I think he goes out there. I think he roughs up uh, Jeff. Um... Or sorry, I like Magni, and I think he goes out there and uh, roughs up Jeff and, and makes it a very, very tough fight for him. Uh, you know, again, I think Jeff Neal needs space to truly let his game go, and uh, Neil Magni is one of those guys that's just not going to let you breathe. Now, last night I did the uh, the podcast with uh, Clint for the Die Hard MMA podcast, and he had kind of uh said that neil magny has like an Usman esque approach, and I saw some people in the comment section kind of like laughing at him for that, but. That, that truly goes to show their level of uh, knowledge within the MMA game. Now, we're not going to say that Neil Magny is going to go out there and get takedown after takedown after takedown, but what he means by Usman-esque performance, and exactly, I absolutely agree, which is just stay in front of your opponent's face, crowd them, uh, you know, don't let them breathe, don't let them get the space that they need to operate, and that's why Usman is as effective as he is, but he has a great wrestling game to back that up, whereas Neil Magny doesn't have the, the, the similar wrestling game, but he has the same pace and pressure that he's able to put on an opponents and kind of drown them, and he has the cardio to back it up, similar to Usman as well, that he's able to go out there and absolutely just crowd his opponents and, and not let them get their game going. So again, kind of a different approach from Usman and Magni, but almost similar in the style of that they just put it on their opponents and don't let them get their game going. And exactly, I exactly expect that happened here uh, with uh, Neil Magni to do this, uh, to, to do the exact thing to uh, Jeff Neal on the spot. So I'll go with Neil Magni to pull the off the upset and stunt the growth once again of this up-and-comer Jeff Neal, and I expect him to do it via decision. Donald Cowboy Cerrone versus Alex Morono. We got no line on this fight yet, but I still want to get this breakdown out for you guys just so that we can be ahead of the odds in case we do see something more uh, than what the odds are suggesting. Uh, so yeah, I'm assuming that Donald Cowboy Sonia is going to be the favorite here, and I'm assume, assuming that we're going to get some slight dog money here on Alex Morono. You can just look at his last fight where he fought Anthony Pettis, where he came in as a plus 175 dog, ended up on the losing end there, and I'm expecting Donald Cowboy to come in around the roughly the same mark, if not, you know, the best I'd be surprised price to see cowboy at would be minus 150 now if you can get cowboy between minus 150 and plus 100 i'd say take an automatic shot on that given i think he's the much more skilled fighter in this fight now the circumstances surrounding this fight right we got cowboy originally scheduled to fight diego sanchez there's that whole ufc josh fabia and and diego sanchez fiasco that happened over the last couple weeks resulting in diego sanchez getting released from the ufc and cowboy now taking on alex morona on short notice now morona has two teammates fighting on the card as well with jeff neal and carlos diego fajera so i'm sure it wasn't that tough of a decision for him and his coach safe sayu to make the the the, the decision to to end up fighting on this card and especially to take on a, a legend like Cowboy Cerrone and try to right the wrong of his last fight against Alex uh, uh, Anthony Pettis. Now with Cowboy Cerrone we know we're always getting a solid all-around fighter usually a slow starter but he seems to have kind of fixed it in the uh, the the Nico Price fight right that was a close fight um, obviously ended up going to a draw. Um, I believe Nico Price was docked one point at the beginning of that uh, first round due to two eye pokes. Um, and then eventually uh, that fight gets uh, taken to a draw. Uh, I believe two judges actually gave, or a, a couple judges, gave Nico Price that first round, which ended up making a 9-9 and then giving him the second round. I thought the third round was Cowboys. 
Um, but I didn't mind what I saw from Cowboy at the beginning of that first round, right? You see Nico Price crowd him immediately, land some big elbows in the clinch and, and really try to put it on him, try to get him out of there quickly, which is the best way to get rid of Cowboy Cerrone, right? Just ask Justin Gaethje, just ask uh, Conor McGregor three or four fights before that. They were able to really stretch him. And that's kind of been the, the theme throughout Cowboy's career is that if you get in his face early, you're going to be able to get him out of there. Is Alex Morono a quick starter? He could be. He could absolutely implement that into his game. But I think that Cowboy's a much better fighter on the feet here and i think at this point in time he's truly i think he's gotten over those first minute jitters i hope that he has obviously he's been training in las vegas now at syndicated mma to truly round out his game and get ready for uh one of his i guess this is his final stretch of fights that he wants to go into with the ufc normally when he's just comfortable and doesn't really give a fuck he's training down there at bmf ranch in, in new mexico at his at his place but it seems as though he's ready to go and and really wants to take this thing seriously which is why he teamed up with john wood and uh started f uh, training over there in vegas obviously cowboy much better all around right alex morono is a black belt let's not forget about that but he just doesn't use it that often it took until his second last fight with reese mckee to start to go out there and shoot takedowns and land takedowns and try to use that top pressure to really get his game going the anthony pettis fight is another one where he went one of five on takedowns but it was the first right off the bat where he got pettis's back and then pettis showed great submission defense and he was able to survive those spots and able to uh you know get out of the way and then eventually get the fight back to the feet where he was able to land the better shots on the feet i think he outstruck him roughly like 50 to 28 or something like that and it definitely showed once they were on the uh, on the feet who was a slicker striker and exactly I expect that to be the exact same thing here with Cowboy Sorney and Morono. I think Cowboy, I don't even know if, if he know. I don't even think he's a black belt, nor do I think he gives a shit about trading in the gi, but you got to say that his uh, jiu-jitsu level and his submission game is definitely black belt level. So he may not have a black belt, but he's definitely very well-versed in those uh, on the mat. So if this fight does hit the mat, I'm not too concerned about Cowboy. I don't think he's going to go out there and get subbed. Alex Morono, not the he's a heavy puncher on the feet and i think he uses his lack of respect for getting taken down um just because he he's very comfortable off his back and thinks he has good enough jujitsu to kind of reverse his opponent or pull off a submission which is why he throws so much heat in his strikes on the on the feet but i think he's going to be the slower guy here on the feet i don't think he's technically as good as cowboy on the feet and as long as cowboy stays conscious i think this is cowboy's fight to win so i'm actually going to go with cowboy stroni here to win this fight just by you know outstriking alex Marone on the feet if he decides to take this fight to the ground and use his wrestling something that we've been seeing him do over the last couple of fights i think it would be a solid spot for him but just looking at his last five it doesn't look the greatest right but look at the level of competition he's going up against that's that's the difference maker here you know losses to tony ferguson justin gaethje conor mcgregor are really not the worst in the world especially considering that mcgregor fight was a little bit of a let's be honest that was a little bit of a tee-up that was a little bit of um that that was a setup fight for Connor to come back after that Khabib loss, right? Then he goes out there and loses that fight to Anthony Pettis. Very close fight. Could have gone either way. Pettis, Pettis ends up getting the nod that night. And then obviously the Nico Price fight has a strong third round, but ultimately goes to a draw. But if that if that point didn't get taken in the first round, Nico Price probably ends up winning that fight. So Either way, I think that stylistically that this is a great fight for Cowboy to win, just as it was for Anthony Pettis to win, who we thought were, was on his last legs. Not to mention, you know, Anthony Pettis getting absolutely boxed to shit by Clay Collard uh, just a, a week ago or two weeks ago now in PFL. 
that you know that loss on Alex Morono's record just doesn't look the greatest anymore. And I'm expecting Cowboy to go out there and put on a bit of a clinic and uh, maybe finish Morono late. I'm not 100% sure, but I'll give uh, Morono the benefit of the doubt. You know, Chaos Williams was the only guy to put him out as of late, and we know Chaos Williams has some serious power in his hands. So I'll go with Cowboy to win this fight via all-around MMA game, takedowns, uh, better striking, faster to the punch, and hopefully his durability holds up. And I'm going to take Cowboy to win this fight via decision. Time for the main event. We got Michelle Watterson going up against Marina Rodriguez on super short notice. Both girls coming in to fill in for the main event that was originally supposed to be a banger of a fight between Corey Sandhagen and TJ Dillashaw. And this isn't nothing new for Michelle Watterson. She was scheduled to fight Angela Hill, I believe, uh, originally as a three-rounder at uh, the time that they had fought. And they get elevated to the main event as a five-rounder after Anthony Smith and Alexander Rakic, I believe, or Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith. There was one of those, I think it was Tiago Santos and Glover, who were supposed to originally fight that night. Uh, that gets uh, obviously postponed and uh, in steps Michelle Watterson and Angela Hill. So this is back-to-back short-notice main event spots for Michelle Watterson, albeit she was at least training for Angela Hill before, and now she's getting this short-notice spot with Marina Rodriguez again to go five rounds. So she's it's nothing new to her, right? She used to fight five rounds even in Invicta. She's had a couple main event slots in the UFC already, whereas Marina Rodriguez, this is going to be her first main event slot, and it's against a very solid solid opponent in Michelle Watterson. In terms of the odds, it's still quite early. I've been seeing it up to minus 190 for Marina Rodriguez, but just before hopping on and pressing a record, uh, she is now a minus 175, and we got plus 145 on Michelle Watterson and I ever so slightly lean on the Michelle Watterson side so the thing that I've been most famous for this whole year is picking Marina Rodriguez to beat uh, Amanda Hebos earlier this year not just to beat her but to finish her and got that plus 1350 KO prop on her and thankfully it came through in that second round when Hebos was playing a little bit too much on the feet before trying to go for a takedown in that second round and Rodriguez's striking comes through now on that breakdown I had kind of I kind of compared it to a, a poor woman's Yuana Yanjaychik. She's very mean and, and strong on the feet, and she has a lot of good striking uh, IQ uh, when she is, you know, letting her Muay Thai and her kickboxing go. And she has a lot of power on those shots, just as we, as we saw and in that uh, Amanda Hibas fight. She obviously struggles once the fight hits the ground. She doesn't really have a great uh, uh, jiu-jitsu game off of her back, nor does she have the greatest get-up game either. And that's usually what her kryptonite is, which is why girls like Carla Esparza and Cynthia Cavio were able to, you know, either be her or take her to a draw even the uh, random marcos fight you know she got taken down and uh, that fight got uh, pretty much put to a draw as well due to the one-sidedness of, of some of the rounds but it seems as though rodriguez seems to fade as the, as the fight goes later and one of the narratives that i've been seeing on twitter a lot this week is that oh this fight's at 125 pounds so her cardio should be better right I don't think it works as easily as that, right? Like, I think if somebody has bad cardio, they have bad cardio no, no matter the division they go to, right? Not having to cut an extra 10 pounds is great and all, and it might help her a little bit come fight night. But I think if she truly has bad cardio, it's still going to shine through no matter what uh, weight class they fight at. You know, again, this is short notice. Is, is she really ready to go in three rounds, let alone five rounds on this short of a notice? Not to mention against a really high caliber fighter, in my opinion, in Michelle Watterson. Now, obviously, I think that Rodriguez will have the better striking in terms of the ability to do damage, but the Karate Hadi is not just named the Karate Hadi for her looks. She has some decent karate uh, techniques, and she does some good work on the feet, and her striking is is pretty good, too. But I think the underrated part of uh, Michelle Rodriguez's game, or sorry, Michelle Watterson's game, 
is her her wrestling. She does good with the wrestling, as we saw saw in her fight against Angela Ho. She was able to get her down a couple of times and do some good work from on top. But she's landed a takedown in every or eight out of her ten fights in the UFC. That's something that she tries to throw in there to try to just uh, get her opponent off guard or catch her opponent off guard if they think it's going to be a striking fight. Not to mention, she has very underrated jiu-jitsu. Nine of her 18 wins have come via submission. She's even submitted Jessica Penne, who, you know, obviously at this point in time doesn't look the greatest, but she has a great jiu-jitsu game herself. I think that part of Michelle Watterson's game is being highly overlooked here, and I think a submission prop uh, dart on Michelle Watterson wouldn't be the worst thing in the world here. I think Watterson will be able to get Marina Rodriguez down here, and I think she'll be serviceable enough on the feet that she won't get knocked out or completely butchered like Amanda Hibas was last time by uh, Marina Rodriguez. So yeah, I do lean uh, Watterson here, and I'm expecting a lot of love to continue to come in on Rodriguez, but I think she will truly struggle with the game, or the wrestling game, I should say, of Michelle Watterson. I'd be mystified if that's not the approach that Watterson is going to be taking here, obviously coming in with a, uh, a three-inch height and reach disadvantage, but she's an all-around great fighter. A lot of people just get caught up in her karate hottie nickname and think she's just a stand-up fighter, but if you watch some of her fights, and exactly that, that Angela Hill fight too, she does a good job of dragging the fight to the ground when it needs Needs to be drunk to the ground and i think she'll do that exactly here against marina rodriguez now i'm the one of the biggest marina rodriguez believers right that's why i backed her in the amanda Hibas fight because i thought the striking difference was so drastic and we definitely saw it and uh, you know play out at the beginning of that second round when Hibas was playing around on the feet too much um, I think Michelle Watterson's striking is good enough. Her distance management is good enough. Her ability to get away from the big shots of Rodriguez will be good enough to eventually drag this fight to the ground and e either pull off a submission or get um, a judge's decision. So I I'll go with Watterson as I do believe she's a better all-around fighter. I don't think stylistically this is a great matchup for Rodriguez, but the longer she does keep this fight vertical, I do think she's more alive to win this fight, but I think she's going to truly struggle with the takedowns as her takedown defense is really not that good. You know, Pretty much almost every fighter was able to get her to the ground. Um, actually, I, I believe it was four out of seven of her UFC fights have hit the ground. But I think it's the fighters that are you know more wrestling-based and more takedown-based that were more successful in getting her down. And I think that's exactly what we get here with Michelle Watterson. One more other thing that I'll throw out there for you guys is that I think that Michelle Watterson is probably top two you know top three or top two in the best jiu-jitsu players that marina rodriguez has fought up into this point i'd rate cynthia calvio slightly ahead of her you know carlos Pozo has a great takedown game but i don't think her uh, jiu-jitsu game is as good as michelle watterson's even jessica aguilar obviously way past her prime Randa marcos i don't think her jiu-jitsu game is up to par with what michelle watterson brings to the table and i i truly think that uh Watterson couldn't pull off a sub here. Now, we don't have the props available to us, um, but obviously the fight doesn't go to decision is the line that's already available, and that is plus 275. Actually, sorry, the under 2.5 is plus 275. I'm not aware if whether the uh, the bookmakers actually know that this is a five-rounder, and they might adjust it to 4.5, and, um, and it's still a line that, that I'm, a, I'm a big fan of. I do just want to quickly pull up the list of opponents that we saw Marina Rodriguez fight. Um, Randa Marcos, again, decent wrestler, not the greatest uh, jiu-jitsu player. Jessica Aguilar, way past her prime. Tisha Torres, mainly uh, a buzzsaw on the feet. She got outpointed in that feet. Uh, in that fight, Cynthia Calvillo, very good jiu-jitsu player, had some openings, had a couple submission attempts. Carla Esparza, same thing, had a couple submission attempts. Better wrestler than she is a, a jiu-jitsu player. And then obviously Amanda Hibas, we know she's a good jiu-jitsu player uh, and was able to get the fight to the ground, but obviously not a good striker. Whereas Michelle Watterson, I think, is the... 
probably the most complete fighter that uh, Marina Rodriguez has fought to this point. I, I, I'm going to be honest that, you know, Tisha Torres never really attacked the grappling. She didn't even attempt to take, or actually at least she didn't land a takedown. Um, yeah, I, I like Mo Shaw Waterson here to pull off the upset. And I'm even going to go as far as to think that she pulls off the submission here. So I'll take Michelle Waterson to win this fight probably by third or fourth round submission. And those are the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoy the breakdowns. And as always, if you guys want to support the show, make sure you guys hit up that Patreon five bucks a month. That is the best way to support. Otherwise, if you guys don't want to chip in anything financially, just hit a like, hit a subscribe. That's the best way you guys can help your boy out. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Shout out once again to CoolBet, CoolBet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. They will, they will match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. So make sure you guys check out CoolBet, great website, great odds. And obviously, one thing that a lot of people like about it, you can parlay props. So go check out CoolBet, awesome, awesome website. All right, hope you guys enjoy the breakdowns. Good luck on your best this week. And obviously, I have a ton more content coming out on my channel throughout the week. Uh, propping you up on Thursday with Cody. Final or ultimate weigh-in on Friday. I believe I've already announced the uh, lineup for that. If you guys haven't checked that out, just obviously check out my Twitter. I'll have it there. And then obviously on fight day, 1 p.m. Eastern, we do a fight day live chat where I just go over all last-minute thoughts and take all questions, comments, and concerns from the chat. That stream is all for you guys. So I'll see you guys 1 p.m. Eastern on a fight day as well. So ton of content just stay tuned to the uh, to the channel hit that notification bell as well just so you guys are notified every time i go live throughout this week the rest of my content this week except my prize picks tips is live content throughout the week and that's how you guys are going to get notifications for that all right good luck enjoy the fights good luck on your bets let's make some money this weekend